This program is brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Program at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, a joint center at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale School of Management. community was always sort of subject to shelter in place orders where residents were ordered to go inside to cover their windows with plastic simply because the air was too toxic. And so the idea that we can't breathe is not new for, for those particular communities. The more we can help low to moderate income families, communities of color prosper, uh, the more we can all achieve our potential for greatness in this country. Welcome back to the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast, a podcast about the clean energy transition and its intersections with the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're joined by Brian Garcia, the CEO and founder of the first green bank in the U.S., the Connecticut Green Bank. We're also joined by Shalonda Baker, the very first deputy director for energy justice at the U.S. Department of Energy. Both are with us to talk energy justice. So before Shalanda joined the DOE, she was a law professor, as well as the co-founder and co-director of the Initiative for Energy Justice, which we'll link to in the show notes. She was generous enough to chat with us at CBAY on two occasions, back in December 2020 and in January 2021. She came to talk about states' roles in the energy transition and about her new book called Revolutionary Power. Both my executive producer, Vero, and I highly recommend the book to anyone interested in learning more about these topics. Well, let's hear from Shalanda herself. Why did I write this book? Why did I write this book? So my journeys have taken me um, to places such as Mexico um, and Hawaii, and now my work is very much national in the U.S. And starting with my work in Mexico, I realized that there was sort of a tension between this transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy and issues of social justice. In Mexico, I met indigenous peoples who were fighting against large scale wind energy development. And they were fighting against that development because they were being dispossessed, displaced, and they were being divided in the same way that we see um, those communities divided with fossil fuel development. And I realized in that moment, which was right around 2010, that we were essentially relying on the same logics and approaches that we relied on in fossil fuel development in the clean energy transition. And so that got me thinking about this tension, right, between social justice and the transition. And so that led me to write this book, which is arguing that equity should be at the heart of this clean energy transition, and that we really have an opportunity to use energy policy as a vehicle for social justice and a vehicle for civil rights. We're recording this episode in the week following some big climate change news that you probably heard about. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, which is the organization that brings the world to the scientific consensus on climate science, released its latest report, and it's pretty sobering. The authors conclude it's unequivocal that humans have warmed the planet, causing the destabilization of our global climate. They warn of a, quote, tipping point, and abrupt changes in our ecosystems, our forests, our oceans, our air, our food systems. But as Professor Piers Forrester from the University of Leeds put it in an interview with Carbon Brief the week before we recorded this, quote, 
the report does really show, scientifically and robustly, that net zero does work for stabilizing or even reducing surface temperatures. End quote. So that's some good news, and it reminds us that it's absolutely critical we figure out the energy transition and how to deploy a lot of fossil-free energy. But how we get there really matters. In one 2021 study exploring utility-scale power in Mexico demonstrated how replacing one utility-scale energy provider with a cleaner version can still perpetuate the same burdens that our traditional energy system has placed on historically disadvantaged groups for centuries. These included injustices in manufacturing and construction, but according to the World Resources Institute, environmental and social concerns with large-scale renewable energy development may also include things like deforestation for solar development, flood risks from hydroelectric dams, threats to endangered species, gear oil spills from wind turbines, and more. All the while, access to energy and electricity may remain difficult or non-existent for the same groups exposed to those damages. I also want to draw links between COVID and environmental justice issues, as well as um, COVID and issues of energy access. And then I'll frame how policymakers at the state level uh, can incorporate energy justice into their decision-making right now. Um, and I see the energy system as being very much implicated in some of the inequities we're seeing manifest with the COVID-19 pandemic. What is this extraordinary moment? I can actually think of no better word than a reckoning. It's a reckoning with ourselves, it's uh, a reckoning with our systems, and the inequality that we have taken to be sort of a natural and immutable part of our social fabric. Uh, I think the COVID-19 pandemic, coupled with the newly exposed, but not new, uh, pandemic of racial violence, has flayed us open, uh, exposing the flaws in how we organize ourselves, and it's shown us who even in normal times, uh, lives in a constant state of vulnerability and precarity. Early on in the pandemic, in April, which now feels like about a thousand years ago, um, <laughs> it became clear that Black people were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And here is an example of some of those disproportionate impacts in terms of COVID-19 deaths. So for example, in Louisiana, we have Blacks comprising 32% of the overall population, but 70% of the deaths attributable to COVID-19. So this is extraordinary in terms of the impacts of this particular um, pandemic on Black communities. But fast forward, so that was early on, right? About a million years ago in April. The 4th of July weekend, the New York Times analyzed racial data that it had to sue the CDC to obtain. Um, and this is racial data regarding COVID-19. And its analysis shows that Latinx and African-American residents of the U.S. have been three times as likely to become infected as their white neighbors. And Black and Latinx um, people have also been twice as likely to die from the virus as white people. And so there are a lot of reasons for this disproportionate exposure rate and death rate, part of which is the fact that Black and Latinx people in this country are more likely to be in jobs deemed essential uh, and less likely to, to have the types of jobs that allow them to work from home. There are also some structural reasons for um, these disproportionate impacts. Um, I think the disproportionate death rates are complicated, right? And, and we're probably going to be doing research on this for many years to come. But I think we can trace a lot of the disproportionate death rates back to structural racism and back to the, the ways that the energy system has um, been designed. 
and we've talked about how part of the design of the energy system has co-located polluting energy plants with communities of color and low to moderate income communities. Then a study from April 2020 out of the Harvard School of Public Health examined the relationship between air pollution and COVID mortality. The findings from this study were essentially that long-term exposure to air pollution increases the likelihood that a person will have one of the comorbidities, such as asthma, that leads to complications and deaths connected to COVID-19. Studies have long demonstrated that Black and brown communities in this country are more likely to live near polluting facilities and fossil fuel generation. And in fact, for the past 30 plus years, there's been an active area of scholarship and environmental justice scholarship, as well as an activist community advocating to dismantle these disproportionate impacts. Shalanda also conducted a study in Boston that compared environmental justice communities, or EJ communities, communities of color, and data on who was most exposed to and affected by COVID-19. She found results consistent with the Harvard study. There's a significant overlap between environmental justice communities, which tend to have a high exposure to air pollution, and communities of color, which are also exposed to COVID-19 at higher rates. But when you think about this, I mean, we have communities that are not only exposed to COVID, but also um, have suffered from decades of exposure to air pollution. And so for these communities who are, again, impacted by COVID, the link between a knee on the neck of a Black man or a brown person um, or an unlawful chokehold mirrors their day-to-day life in terms of exposure to pollution. They can't breathe. And they haven't been able to breathe. And COVID-19 has actually come for them in the same way that the fossil fuel industry and petrochemical industry uh, have come for them over the past 50 plus years. Port Arthur, Texas, which is actually uh, my father's birthplace, but it is also the birthplace of the modern fossil fuel industry. It's a low income, predominantly black and brown community that even before shelter in place um, became sort of a part of the broader lexicon, that community was always sort of subject to shelter in place orders where residents were ordered to go inside um, to cover their windows with plastic or other types of coverings um, simply because the air was too toxic. And so the idea that we can't breathe is not new for, for those particular communities. And black and brown communities are exposed to far more fossil fuel pollution than they generate, like 50% more pollution. And that's compared to non-Hispanic white communities who are exposed to 17% less pollution than they produce, according to a 2019 study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. But it's not all doom and gloom. There are some solutions, and one helpful avenue for cleaner air in EJ communities of course, is widespread solar adoption. One of the things that, you know, many in the environmental justice and energy justice communities have been talking about is how to increase solar penetration in black and brown communities. And this could be, again, a way to mitigate some of the um, the air pollution issues, of course, not necessarily getting at some of the broader um, structural problems around transportation and peaker facilities, but certainly more localized solar can help to um, mitigate some of the the air pollution. Um, Recent studies have shown that even when you control for income and home ownership, black and brown communities simply have less access to solar. 
But interestingly, when Shalanda studied the kinds of solar that's deployed in black and brown households compared to white households, she found that white households were more likely to own their solar outright, whereas black and brown households were more likely to lease it. This is important because it means that fewer of the economic benefits that are associated with solar can actually flow to those communities. And that's important for another reason, which is that these communities also suffer from a higher energy burden and decreasing their energy bills and also giving them greater access to the economic benefits of solar uh, can go a long way. So there's something called an energy burden, which essentially means that um, if, if you are paying less than 6% of your household income on energy, then that's considered affordable. If you're paying more, then that's considered a burden. That's Brian Garcia. And we have to say that in addition to being the founder and CEO of the Connecticut Green Bank, he's also a fellow Yale School of the Environment alum. Okay, so what do you need to know about green banks right now? Well, it's a model that's gaining national attention, but it's not a bank like where you or I would stash our savings. Instead, it uses some public funding to attract private investment in things like renewables, efficiency, or even wildland conservation. It makes investors more comfortable about these investments, which we should be clear are not necessarily risky to begin with, but it uncomplicates things for banks. So by the green bank investing in a project, it can attract more private funding and really get a project off the ground. And one thing that's really exciting about the Connecticut Green Bank and green banking in general is its ability to focus on and experiment with inclusive prosperity strategies that reduce energy burdens like Shalanda was talking about. Here's Brian again. In Connecticut, um, we have high energy costs. Um, We have an energy burden metric that we focus on quite a bit, which is to reduce the percent of household income spent on energy. Uh, So we've helped reduce the burden of energy costs on over 55,000 families and businesses by helping them deploy uh, clean energy. Uh, And specifically, we've focused quite extensively on ensuring that clean energy is available to vulnerable communities. We're currently working on our equity metrics and ensuring that uh, the green economy we are building, the investment we are attracting from the private sector uh, is going into uh, our most vulnerable communities. Uh, The more we can help uh, low to moderate income families, communities of color uh, prosper, uh, the more we can all achieve our potential for greatness in this country. Uh, So we are uh, completely excited by that. But it all really starts at the top with investment. Connecticut's done a number of energy burden uh, studies that really show that low to moderate income families pay disproportionately more on their energy bills. So in Connecticut, low to moderate income families can be paying 10, 15, 20 percent of their household income on energy bills. So that is completely unaffordable. So we have this benchmark now of 6 percent of household income as a target for low to moderate income families through our residential solar program, developed a number of strategies to address the problem of ensuring more investment and deployment in LMI communities. Uh, The first thing we did was we conducted more research. Uh, We wanted to understand um, if uh, credit scores or income uh, were an issue for financiers uh, and contractors in the market. Uh, And one of the things that we learned in Connecticut is that credit scores are not correlated with income, meaning Uh, If you're low income, it doesn't mean that you have poor credit. 
So, so they're, they're a good bet, right? So um, that was one of our first findings in research. So, so then we needed to share that research with the private market, you know, invest in low to moderate income communities, put all your, your biases aside and put your resources to work to deploy clean energy there. Uh, and then to get them a little bit more attracted to this, we, we'd offer a, an increased incentive. So we essentially provided a, a kicker for low to moderate income households, essentially two and a half times the normal incentive uh, for families who wanted to deploy a solar PV in low to moderate income uh, census tracts. But those families had to also demonstrate a need in order to access that additional incentive. So, you know, whether it's food stamps, school lunch vouchers, you know, we have a number of different ways for families to demonstrate need. Um, and then we would provide support to those companies to help market solar PV in those communities through community-based campaigns. In 2018, the Berkeley National Lab issued a report looking at solar adoption across 13 states. It showed that the median income of PV adopters was $32,000 higher than the median for all households. And much of this disparity could be attributed to home ownership as residential rooftop PV adopters were effectively all homeowners, which when compared to just owner-occupied households was still higher income, but less so. One heartening trend found in the study was that PV adoption has in fact been trending toward more moderate income households since 2010. And by 2016, the four highest income states had reached income parity, which means that in California, Connecticut, DC, and Massachusetts, there are as many PV installations happening below that 50th percentile of income as above that. And this is great because that means if you can generate your own electricity, you don't have to buy as much off the grid, which can be really expensive. And the DOE Low Income Energy Affordability Data Tool, or LEAD, gave us a sense of what energy burden looks like across the country. According to the DOE, the national average energy burden for low-income households is 8.6% which is three times higher than the national non-low-income household average of 3%. It can get much higher for some low-income brackets. In Vermont, for instance, residents in the lowest 30% income bracket have an energy burden of 27%. There, the richest 20% spend about 6% of their income on energy spending, which still qualifies as having an energy burden, according to Brian's metrics. But let's look to Mississippi. The poorest 30% of the population there spend 31% of their income on energy, and in Puerto Rico, up to a whopping 37%. Which is basically saying, for every 10 bucks you make, you have to give four just to power your home. So you get it. In pre-COVID times, energy burdens were already a huge problem. But now the pandemic has exacerbated these burdens as well. And that's important because the folks who are putting themselves out there, having to go to jobs that require face-to-face -face contact, as well as those who are experiencing joblessness or insecurity with respect to employment, are also facing difficulties meeting their monthly energy bills. So with respect to the environmental justice issues and energy burden issues that have been highlighted, um, COVID-19 has exposed the many burdens that folks are facing and communities of color are facing. We now see that COVID-19 has exposed the way the energy system and the laws and policies that are essential to its design have placed more burdens on BIPOC communities. So Black, Indigenous, people of color communities making them more likely to die or experience complications from the disease. We also see the way that COVID-19 has destabilized the economies to an extent that people in these same communities, environmental justice communities, 
who pay a disproportionate amount of their overall in income to meet energy needs are now faced with the choice to either put themselves in harm's way um, in an essential job or face a possibility of having their utilities shut off in the middle of a pandemic because they can't meet their energy bill. Um, and so these are ongoing issues that are unfolding in real time. And for Solanda, the issues of energy justice that we talked about today were part of her growing up, which she discusses in her book. My dad is from an environmental justice community, which is Port Arthur, Texas. And my mom was a single mom who struggled with issues of energy and security. And so that meant we were heating our home using the oven. That meant that we were going to bed at night, you know, under layers of blankets. I want people to know just how integral energy is to their day-to-day -day lives. And so um, we have this pandemic. In March, we had uh, governors and regulators around the country issuing moratoria on utility shutoffs. And so what that meant was that, you know, folks would not be vulnerable to having their electricity or other utilities shut off during the public health emergency. A lot of folks lost their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we shut down the economy. So there was this moratorium. In the last couple of months, we've seen those moratoria expire and there is not blanket winter protection. So right now there is an invisible crisis that is happening all over the country where people are having their electricity shut off or they're at the risk of having their electricity shut off. And let's not even talk about March and April when if there is sort of winter protection on shutoffs, people are gonna emerge from the winter with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars in, in unpaid electricity bills. So this is absolutely an issue that we need to be paying attention to through the many, many ways that clean energy and justice interact, one thing remains clear. Equity should be at the heart of this clean energy transition. We really have an opportunity to use energy policy as a vehicle for social justice and a vehicle for civil rights. We'll leave you here for now. We're so thrilled to have had this time with you and thanks for listening. This episode was written by Vera Porgmeyer and by me, your host, Katie Evinger. It was edited by Ryan McCovey and our executive producer is Vera Borgmeyer. Thanks as well to Heather Fitzgerald for her communication support. Our web design graphics were created by Hank Van Assen Designs and our theme music is by Dr. Turtle. If you have questions or comments, please reach out to us at cbay.podcast at yale.edu which is C, B as in boy, E, Y, dot podcast at yale.edu. Our website where you can find our sources and additional links from all our episodes is cbay.yale.edu forward slash research forward slash Yale dash clean dash energy dash future. Thanks so much again and see you next episode.